at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. Today, I have with me Dr. Anna McLeod from Dalhousie University. She is a professor and director of education research and the unit head for research in medicine. Welcome, Anna. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Oh, thank you, Syra. I'm so glad to be here. And I'm so excited to be asked. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And me too. I'm looking forward to this conversation. And as I usually tell people, now I have kind of, I found a structure kind of for the, for the conversation. And I like to have similar things at the beginning and at the end, just to get people acquainted with the person's life and where they're coming from. So my, usually my first question is, could you please tell us a little bit more about your growing up years? Um, who was your family? Who were your heroes? What, what were you um, curious about when you were growing up? What, what did it look like for you? Sure. Yeah, that's that's a fun way to start. Thank you. So I am a, a maritimer through and through from the east coast of Canada, grew up in a small town here in Nova Scotia. And, you know, when I think about it, my childhood really was pretty idyllic. I, I have one brother and we're, we're close in age and he was and probably still is my my best friend, but I'm actually from a, a huge family. So I have my my just my brother and I and my core family. But um, just to put it in perspective, I have I have 41 first cousins, and most of them lived really close to me uh, when I was when I was growing up. So I I grew up feeling very much like I was part of something important and, and bigger than me and grew up with with lots of kids about my just about my age and we did lots of of playing and imagining so really really connected to my to my extended family here here in rural Nova Scotia um, but then when I was about 10 my my dad had a new job and we moved away. We moved not far away, but for me as a 10-year-old kid, it felt like we were moving to the other side of the earth. So we, we moved to Fredericton, uh, New Brunswick, which is about a, a four-hour drive, but just far enough away that we, you know, I didn't see everybody in the same way that I was used to. And that was such a, I think, an important moment for me. In, in my childhood, it was such a big shift. And I think really, you know, in hindsight, it was kind of my first, the first time in my life, I sort of felt lonely <laughs> and felt like an outsider. Um, you know, I was used to being part of all this energy and excitement and all these people around. And all of a sudden, I, I had to spend a lot of time on my own. And, and you know, figure out how to reestablish myself and, and, and find new networks and new people and all of those sorts of things. So that move, I think, was really uh, an important part of my, of my childhood and, and uh, something that kind of sparked my, my interest in thinking about, you know, what it means to be a bit of a, an outsider in, in some ways and then to, um, you know, to, to feel like you need to, to figure out who you are and where you fit and all of those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, it made me think a lot about what it means to be out, outside the center. Okay. So you were very little, you were 10. Yeah. Um, 
at that age, it's, it's very, I imagine it's very memorable. Mm -hmm. What activities did you find that gave you kind of the outlet to feel less lonely or to feel a little more connected? Did you find new things that you didn't discover before? I, yeah, I did. I did for sure. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty musical person. So I was able to kind of dive into those interests. So I started or restarted piano lessons, but with, with a new teacher in a new place. And, um, but I, I, in lots of ways, even though Fredericton, New Brunswick, which was where we moved to is, is not a big city. It was, it felt like a metropolis compared to the small town in, in Nova Scotia, where I had been based um, beforehand. So there were lots of new resources and, and new opportunities, classes and teachers and things for me. So I, you know, learned to play the piano and, and the clarinet, but my, you know, my first love was singing. And so I did a lot of um, voice lessons and sang in choirs and, and um, you know, some formal voice training and those sorts of things. I actually grew up with um, Misha Gosman or Misha Berger Gosman, who, if, if you're a fan of um, opera music. She's a, a pretty popular Canadian soprano who's, you know, been nominated for Grammy and won Juno Awards and all those kinds of things. So I grew up, you know, competing in the Fredericton Music Festival with Misha. Who, so I learned a lot about what it means to never win. <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was incredible, though, a, a lifelong incredible talent. Misha was, and it was kind of fun to uh, to, to watch her grow and, and develop in, in her career. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm, I was kind of an artistic kid. Like I love to draw, love to write stories. And, um, you know, one of my favorite things to do was to draw houses and then write stories about the people who lived in the houses and, um, you know, that sort of thing. So always, always like to write actually and, and draw. And you know, one of my favorite memories of my of my childhood as being part of a group called the, the Young Authors Club. And we would write stories and then travel around and visit kids at different schools and, and stand up and read our stories and you know hold a bristleboard sheet with a picture that we had drawn uh, representing our, our stories. And it was such a great program. And they would invite Canadian children's authors to come and speak to us. And so I remember having um, Robert Munch came and read Hey Mud Paddle to us and um, there was a, a woman named Janet Lunn who wrote mystery stories for a little bit older kids. And, and oh, that for me was just a wonderful, wonderful moment that stands out for me. And I, you know, I read and reread all of her, all of her stories. It was such a, such a cool thing to be a part of. So I always thought I either wanted to be, you know, a writer or a teacher. And so in lots of ways, I kind of stumbled into the perfect job. <laughs> um, so it, it's, yeah, I, I do feel like I have my, my dream job in lots of ways. So how, how long were you um, Fredericton, <laughs> if yeah. I was that right? Fredericton, yeah, I, I stayed there for the, for the rest of my kind of growing up formative years. Oh. And I actually did, a, I did my first, my first two university degrees there. So I did a bachelor of, of arts degree in, um, in French linguistics of all things, which was really an interesting, um, an interesting program. You know, it was the first time I hit, I remember a course called sociolinguistics where it helped me stop and think about you know, the way that people talk to each other. There's a, there's so much more happening there <laughs> than just the words and the conversation, you know, helped me to think about, 
the intonations and the, the, the messages and, and the things that we say and the way that we speak to each other and those sorts of things. So I think it, it sort of sparked a, uh, an interest in, in discourse analysis and, mm-hmm. and that would stick with me throughout my career. So yeah, I did a, a Bachelor of of arts in in linguistics and French linguistics, and then I went on to do a bachelor of education at the University of New Brunswick, and I was a teacher um, for a couple of years, not for a long time, but I, I actually started. I had my first teaching job before I before I had graduated with my bachelor of education degree because it was just one of those opportunities where the the, the uh, school board was looking to hire someone who could teach both French and music. And, and I was that person. And so I uh, started teaching really quite young and, and taught in elementary schools for a couple of years and, and then decided that I might like to do something else. And through a series of strange but wonderful coincidences, <laughs> found myself working in, in the field that I'm in now. Yeah. So now I want to pick your brain on that. Like mm-hmm. You kind of, you had your plan, your path, your interest, you ended up being a teacher, which was part of your plan. But then what happened there to, to do back to move from teaching to research and from research to medical education? What's the journey there? And yeah. also I have to say, I was very interested that you did your PhD in Australia. So I need to hear that story. Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. So a couple of things. Um, you know, I, I always saw myself as a teacher. And I still kind of identify as a teacher. You know, if someone asks me, really, what are you? I I think I'm a teacher, even though I don't do as much actual teaching these days as I, as I used to. Um, But I I love, I love that, that opportunity to find myself, you know, thinking about how do I, how do I get messages across and how do I share ideas and what's the best way to, to do education. That's really where I'm, where I'm interested. But I, I taught for a couple of years in New Brunswick and thought, well, I, I don't know how to say it other than I just didn't feel finished. Okay. You know? I felt like there was something more that I wanted to do, but I wasn't really sure what it, what it was. So I took the obvious path and went back to do a, a master's degree in education, thinking that I might move into, you know, school administration, school leadership, that kind of thing. Um, and I, at that point, my family, my parents had, had moved back to Nova Scotia and I wanted to be close to my family. So I decided that I would look for a university here in Nova Scotia. And so I, I did my master's of, master of arts degree in education here at Mount St. Vincent University. So Mount St. Vincent University, or the Mount as we call it around here, is a small, small university, small class sizes. And it was founded, you know, in the early 1900s by the Sisters of Charity. And it was one of the first places that focused on women and women's education. Women could study there before they could study in lots of other places. And even though I studied there in the early 2000s, you know, much later than when it had initially begun, Again, it still felt like a place that was really welcoming and encouraging for women and valuing of women's experiences. And I, you know, I hit the mount and I hit feminist theory oh. at the same time. It was the first time that I had the opportunity to stop and think about what it means really to be a girl and, and a woman 
in the world. And it changed everything for me, I think, Um, you know, so I think back at my time at the Mount in such a, as such an important moment for me, all of a sudden I was able to see myself, you know, I I always thought of myself as shy or quiet or, you know, I felt small in lots of ways. And, and, um, you know, all of a sudden learning about feminist theory and, and the ways that, you know, society and, and the world help to structure women's and well, maybe not help, that might not be the right word, but work yeah. <laughs> to structure women's and, and women's experiences. And it, it changed things for me. And all of a sudden, rather than seeing myself as this shy individual, I saw myself as part of something broader, something different. And, you know, as, as a, a person who was socialized in a particular way to feel like I had to act a certain way and that sort of thing. And, and all of a sudden, rather than thinking that I, I was, you know, too shy, too nervous to do things, I started thinking that, wait a minute, you know, there's, there's more happening here and, and being able to see it and name it and see yourself within it really did open up a world of, of possibilities for me. And so at that point, I was going to do a, a course-based master's degree where I, you know, did a project and went back to school and applied it. And, and I, I decided that I wanted to switch gears and do a, a research-based thesis degree. And, um, and I, I did, and it was wonderful. It was, it was such a, a game changer for me. So um, I think back as, at that time in my life as being a really, really pivotal moment, you know, where things changed, things felt different. And, and I saw a world of possibility for myself that I hadn't necessarily even considered as a possibility before. And was that a realization? Because it's so fascinating to hear a story where just the experience of going through education or, or a university changes you as a person. I guess it was yeah. also the age you went through and all those contextual pieces. Mm-hmm. Did that experience influence your decision to go to Australia? Because as a person who is very close to your family in a smaller place, the decision to get, go all over the around the world kind of a, makes me curious about. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, one of the reasons that I did decide to, to um, pursue the, that particular PhD program was a couple of reasons, um, but I didn't have to spend a lot of time away from my family. Oh. So I was able to just spend small chunks of time away. And in lots of ways, it actually facilitated me being able to stay <laughs> close, physically close, um, and, but also to do a little bit of safe exploring, you know, about what it meant to, to be away. So, um, and interestingly enough, here in Nova Scotia at the time, there was actually no PhD program in education available. And so I was looking for opportunities that would allow me to have some closeness, but but to do what I, what I wanted to do. And I've, I think, um, you know, I also was really kind of motivated by a lot of the, the people who were at the, the University of South Australia, which was where I did my, where I did my studies. There were a lot of really um, good thinkers about higher education in general. And, you know, one of the people who was really involved with, with the program that I was part of at that time is um, Pat Thompson, who, runs a a really 
successful academic blog patter for that that takes on you know, issues related to graduate studies and, and higher education and takes a really critical perspective on higher education as a process, an institutional process. And for me, that was, some, you know, being able to work with some of those great thinkers, spend a little bit of time exploring the world, a safe amount of time <laughs> away from home to travel back and forth, that sort of thing. It was, it, it kind of fit really well for me. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the world now, you know, especially now in, in the COVID times that we're living through, the physical distance in the world has become different. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, we can do things that weren't necessarily available to us a, a few years ago. But it was, uh, it was a wonderful experience, actually. I think it was a, a, great, a great program and a great fit for me. And what was your focus uh, during that time in terms of research? Yeah, so... Um, Again, I had come to do my master's degree thinking that I was going to work in schools and study schools. And so I and I connected at that time at that time at Mount St. Vincent University with a guy named Bly Frank, who is he he went on to become the dean of education at UBC and has just retired from that post. But um, uh, so this is a bit of a convoluted story, but Mm -hmm. I was working with Bly uh, as his research assistant at the mount and Bly actually um, had a new a new job to go and work at the medical school at Dalhousie both of which are in you know Fredericton not far apart from each other so when Bly went to Dal to the medical school he negotiated that I would come along with him as his research assistant and I did and um, so Bly, Bly and I were working together on a project and my PhD was going to be about it was called post-colonial masculinities and schooling in the new millennium. Wow. <laughs> so it was interesting. Gender. It was a, a study about yeah. how gender plays out in schools. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were ready to go. But in the meantime, we had physically moved to the medical school and we we're hanging around and seeing lots of things happening in medical education. And one of the things that caught my attention and still fascinates me was um, problem-based learning. And so I'm starting to get going, get rolling on this post-colonial masculinities project. And on the sideline, I'm watching all of these really interesting things happening in the context of problem-based learning. And I found my attention shifting, 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 drifting towards problem-based learning. And so I I dropped my original uh, plan to study masculinities in schooling. And my my doctoral research ended up being a feminist post-structural investigation of problem-based learning cases. And so it and I I I loved it, you know, it was one of those studies, it was it was so rewarding and, and so fun. And I so it was an ethnographic study of problem-based learning. And I uh, for my field work, I did my field work locally here uh, in Nova Scotia, and I was able to hang out and watch problem-based learning in action. Um, and so the kind of the, the research question was, you know, how do cases, the case stories that we write that are the, at the center of problem-based learning, how do cases teach us about, about what really matters mm. in medicine? And um, so I was really interested in the ways in which those stories get written. Right. So who gets to speak? Who gets the name? 
um, who becomes the the butt of the joke, you know, when when people make opportunity make take the opportunity to be funny in cases, those sorts of things. And uh, yeah, so I I hung out with a group and observed them actually, you know, digging into cases, actually doing problem based learning. And then I interviewed uh, tutors and students, and then I, and I did a, a discourse analysis on a set of of cases and wove that all together. And it was a, it was a really, I still feel good about that work. You know, it was still one of the projects that I, I've got a, a warm and fuzzy feeling about. <laughs> I yeah. love doing that work. Yeah. I imagine. So then your transition, so you basically just stay at Dalhousie from what I can tell. You got there. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Well, it, yeah, I, I've been a Dal on and off for most of my career. I did as soon as I finished my PhD, I had a, a job at another Nova Scotia university though. That's about, about a two hour drive from here. I'm not good at kilometers. Everything is hours for me. I don't know how far away it is, but <laughs> anyway, it was at St. Francis Xavier university, which is in uh, St. Effects people often call it in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. And I, my first job post PhD was to work as a, it's called a knowledge translation scientist at the National Collaborating Center for Determinants of Health. Um, it's a bit of a pivot mm-hmm. and a kind of a, a moment in my career where I was doing something really different, but I, I managed to, to find my way back to medical education. I missed it when I was working somewhere else, when I was working in a, in a different discipline altogether. Uh, but I did, did, learn a lot about knowledge translation and, and how to get messages conveyed to people who might need them in, in the brief time that I spent working in another role. Right. So who or what brought you back to that housing? Well, you know, this is an, a kind of a, an interesting story, but at, in, in 2009, uh, the misfortune of the Dalhousie Medical School became my personal fortune in that they, they, we, the medical school uh, had some LCME at the time accreditation challenges. And so I uh, had to invest strongly in, in um, education programming. And so at that point, there was a, a lot of hiring happening in order to make sure that we had the right people in place to you know, to lend rigor and structure to educational programming. And so um, at the time we were undergoing a complete, Dalhousie was undergoing a complete uh, curriculum renewal and, and really working hard to embed structures and processes to make sure that everything was progressing, at, at, you know, in, in, as it should. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, I was able to, to come back to be part of that accreditation project. And, and yeah, I've been hanging around ever since. <laughs> so now you, your research is a little bit different from your PhD interest. So I, I know you're doing work on distributed medical, distributed medical education, learning with technology, developing professional identities. How did you connect all those various research interests and why did you pick so many thus far? Yeah, you know, I, I have done a little bit of everything, I think. And what, when I think about what the common thread is there, I, I really love theory and method. Hmm. And so to me, in lots of ways, the content area is kind of secondary to the, the, pro, the approaches and the theories um, 
And so, you know, I, I find that I can, I, I really love thinking about a complex theory and then trying to find the really practical applied elements of that to help make a, a difference in the way that we think about the, the practice of medical education. So that theory practice connection is really, I think my primary interest in lots of ways. Like how do we take these ideas that can seem really abstract and disconnected from reality and then make them useful? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm convinced that there, there is utility in, in all theory. So I, I kind of see that as my primary task. It's taking the, taking the co- not complex necessarily, but the, the abstract and, and trying to make it concrete. Oh, good. The other thing that I noticed uh, by following your career is that you have developed a lot of collaborations everywhere. Like I see you collaborating with people in Australia, in Singapore, in the U.S., and I was curious to know, um, what's your approach to that? And how did you go about developing those collaborations and what have you learned from maybe mistakes or interesting experiences? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, one of the things, and I, I, I listen to the podcast lots and I think one of the common um, strands that lots of people raise is this is such a great community, isn't it? The medical education community, people are so encouraging and and welcoming and open-minded open-hearted so you know I personally I can't I can't see myself wanting to work in another discipline only because I you know from things I hear about other realms I I don't know that we find I, I that I would find the same sort of community that we found here and so I've always been able to um you know, to think about areas of interest and, and, and feel comfortable reaching out to people who I know are working in the area. I've always received warm and welcoming um, messages from people when I've, when I've reached out to them to connect. And so, you know, my, my kind of approach to those things is I feel fairly I don't know if safe is the right word, but I, I feel comfortable uh, reaching out to people, even if I don't know them necessarily well, um, personally to say, hey, I, I know your work. I know this is what you're interested in and I'm kind of interested too. And I'd love to have a chat and see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's amazing how often that informal reach out can can lead to great things. And so I, 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 I do that whenever I, whenever it, feels like the right thing to do. Um, and I do think that's a function of our, of our medical education community being, you know, being the way it is. It's, it, it, it works really well. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really grateful for a lot of those connections. It's such a great thing for, for people to listen to, like, don't be afraid of reaching out because you never know what can happen. Absolutely. And one of the things that I'm noticing is you have a book coming up. Yeah. And I didn't know that until today, basically. And it's with Lara Barpio, who is in the States. Again, another international collaboration. What's the story behind? What was the catalyst for you to decide to write a book? And what's the topic? Oh, yeah. This is so we're really interested. This is one of the things I think that I'm lately, I feel the most strongly about is a concept called um, invisible work. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have. One of the earlier research projects that I worked on, which was about distributed medical education, and and you mentioned it, learning with technology, distributed medical education. And so um, Dalhousie was one of the 
early uh, medical schools that had a, a two campuses that were separated by about 400 kilometers, one in Nova Scotia and one in New Brunswick. And we and lots of medical schools use uh, a similar approach, but where we have at the time video conferenced uh, lectures in particular. And I became really interested in thinking about, you know, how, how do the technologies themselves influence what happens in the context of medical education and, and drew on work I know that you know well, Sarah, uh, sociomaterial approaches uh, to understand like how do buttons and microphones and cameras and things change the learning environment? I mean, when I did that work back in 2012, 13, could never have imagined the, the <laughs> the ways in which cameras and microphones and Zoom and Teams and things could become, would become integrated into the way we do medical education. But, you know, at the time, there wasn't a lot happening, uh, thinking about the technologies connecting, connecting people. And part of that work, we interviewed the audiovisual professionals who worked behind the scenes to facilitate the connections. And what struck me still in in my entire career I think those interviews were some of the most interesting that I've ever done because these these people I, I say these guys because they were all guys they, they were so interested in in the process they were so committed to doing it well they wanted to offer the best learning experience that they could and they were also um observing all the time. So they were working behind the scenes in a control room. It was like a studio, TV studio quality um, control room with, you walked in and there were monitors and screens everywhere and they're watching. They're part of every medical education interaction, but people didn't know they were there necessarily, right? It was sort of all up behind the scenes. So they had this invisible expertise and they were talking about really interesting issues. Like, how do you know, uh, you know, how do I know as an IT person when to step in and interrupt your lecture? Because I can see that things are going off the rail. I can see that, you know, there are a bunch of people at another site who have questions that you're not paying attention to. Mm -hmm. Or I can see that, you know, the things that you're doing on screen are not translating, but I don't know when to interrupt. And, you know, so they were talking through the kinds of decision-making that they engage in as behind the scenes experts. And they, you know, heard lots of interesting stories about, you know, being in the airport and seeing students, medical students that they recognize that they know very well because they see them all day, every day on screen and, you know, going up to someone and being like, oh, hey, you're med too, right? And the person being like, oh, wow, I don't know who you are at all. And so I, I that inspired for me a, a real interest in the invisible work of medical education, the things that happen behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And so um, when you start thinking about it and breaking it down, there's so much, so much invisible work happens in a medical school. And we have a, an image in our mind of, you know, the, the doctor teaching at the bedside, or, you know, maybe the, a professor of anatomy that wheels in a carefully preserved cadaver, like the things that we see through television and movies or read about in books, those sorts of things. And it's almost a romanticized, I think, image of what a medical school looks like. Mm -hmm. But there are so many people with so many interesting backgrounds and, you know, such diverse skill sets and those sorts of things. So that is a very long-winded way to say, the idea behind the book is to tell some of those stories of the invisible work 
of medical education to bring to the fore the different expertise uh, that makes medical education happen. So, you know, we're making explicit the, the roles of IT professionals or building managers or, you know, administrative assistants, all of those sorts of things that, you know, we, we all know who those people are in our everyday world, but their, their work for all kinds of reasons is not visible and it's often not valued in, in the way that we would, would hope that it is. So the sociology of work and why we pay attention to the things we do, those sorts of areas, I think, are, are the kinds of things that we're, we're hoping to take on. That's fascinating. I, I love that the way you describe it and, and also the, the actual interest is so many behind the scenes, I, yeah. I agree. And the reason you're writing a book is, are you hoping to reach a different audience or is the, the message a little bit different than if you were to write that as a research manuscript? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, you know, we were hoping that we would actually be able to get people who, who do the jobs to help okay. write the, the chapters to contribute and, you know, to tell the, to tell the stories um, in depth. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we, but there's a book gives you space okay. <laughs> in a different sort of way to, to elaborate. And so, you know, I, I think being, being able to be kind of inclusive in that way was one of the goals. And we, you know, we thought a book would be a nice way to have people, um, actually tell their stories and, and contribute to the development of, of their, their own yeah. narrative, um, as it were. I also, I've only, I've been involved with, with one other book where I was a, a co-editor and I, it, it feels nice to have a book <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, this is, it, it, it was a very satisfying process at the end of the day to look at, and it, you know, similarly, when you're, when you have your, your dissertation at the end and to see the material product, like this is, this is, this is where we landed through all of this hard work. It's a kind of a, a nice product to have feels yeah. good. Well, I wish you all the best with finishing. I know it's coming in 2023 and I'll be, I'll be looking forward to talk to you hopefully again about the book because it's oh, yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. I would like to end with a, this section that we're now calling the little things in life, which is basically random questions. So okay. if you don't mind, I'm going to throw at you a couple of random questions. Cool. Um, what activities outside academia do you enjoy that make you feel energized? Hmm. People might not know about. Well, I, I have a six-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she keeps me pretty busy. And it's interesting. One of the things I was thinking about lately is through her, I'm able to cycle back to some of those things that I really love to do as a kid. So she loves to draw. And we do uh, a lot of there's a, a YouTube channel called Art Kids Art Hub, I think, where the, there's a teacher and teaches you how to draw cartoons and we, we draw cartoons together and make up stories and that sort of thing. Um, so that's, that's kind of fun, a fun way to get back to my, my earlier interests in storytelling and, and drawing pictures. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Yeah. You also mentioned at the beginning that you were very involved with music and this question just came out of the blue in my head. Mm -hmm. If you were to enter a room and there's an in, intro music for the person coming into the room. What song would you choose? Oh, <laughs> as the intro music. Oh wow! 
And if you cannot find a song, then what kind of music would you choose? I, you know, I, I am, um, let me think. It would definitely be upbeat, cheerful music for sure. That's kind of, um, kind of my, kind of my thing. Um, it's interesting. There's a, speaking about my, my daughter, my six-year-old daughter, she, she's doing piano lessons now. And she just uh, had a recital last weekend where they had, the kids had to write their own songs. Oh. And um, I mean, they're, you know, very, very sweet, very cute little songs. And um, so my daughter's song was called Making a Pizza is Fun. Oh, <laughs> Maybe that would be my intro music. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very short. <laughs> but it would be fun for sure. Memorable. Fun. Yeah, that's right. That's good. <laughs> my final question is, if you had the chance to retire now, I don't know if you have plans, but let's say you have the chance now and re-career, what would you choose to do? Ah, this is a great question. So my, it's, it's interesting. My, I, I am from a, a family of um, Croatian immigrants. And when my grandmother came to Canada, she and her sisters uh, started uh, their own business and it was a hairstyling business. And it is, it's still operating today, actually. And it was a, I mean, I, I don't think I appreciate it when I was younger, how brave they must have been to come to, uh, to a new country and dive right into starting a, a new business. And so, and my, I have lots of family members who have worked in the family hair salons over the years. And, you know, Syra, the hairdresser gene runs deep with me. <laughs> I think I had my first perm when I was about five years old oh, wow. I still think I would enjoy it as a career I think it's an underappreciated art you know can make a make it somebody feel good and I, I have had I've probably had every hairstyle that you can possibly imagine over the years <laughs> um, during COVID that was my kind of my COVID project I had to learn how to do my own roots <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think maybe that might be the thing. I might go back and give it a try. It was always sort of in the background in my mind. Is you know, if things don't work out, I can always go do that. So there you go. That might be my thing. Wow, totally unexpected, but yeah. really interesting answer. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like a novel writer or something, but oh, even yeah. better. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I remember. Uh, talking to uh, one uh, one time um, Lorelai Lingard came to, to be a visiting scholar with us and I was telling her a bit about my family background and she said that would make a great novel so maybe maybe that's the thing maybe I write the novel yeah. about the rural hairdressing shop for me there you go family you. Uh, maybe you can have your daughter writing the play the music <laughs> we've closed the loop there you go totally <laughs> and uh, Thank you very much. This was a very enjoyable conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Oh, likewise. I really appreciate the invitation and the chance to chat with you, Syra. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I will see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. 
Thanks for listening.